Corinthians chapter 7 starts in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And of course, Paul is referring to the promises that God made in the last chapters. In verse 17, he says that you're the temple of the living God. And then there's the promise. He says, I will dwell in them and I'll walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what's unclean. And I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises. So you have to sort of back up to say, well, what promises are we talking about? I will dwell in them. That's a promise from God. If, if you will come out from the world, in other words, you're living, you know, we were all born this way. If, you're all, if you, any of you were born perfect, get out of here, you know. Uh, nobody's born perfect. You're born a sinner, the Bible says. And then there's some point of your life, you, you get right with the Lord, and you start walking with the Lord. So at some point, everybody's going to come out from among them, whatever that looks like. Now, we last week pointedly look at what he's quoting here, which is a story out of number 16, which is a very vivid thing that we don't really want to talk about, but we always say, well, the world's out there. So when you come to the Lord, you come out of the world, and you know now we're here in the church. But in the story out of number 16, and then really uh, Moses and God, they carry the story on, talking about that story all the way through Numbers 33, which is where these uh, segments of Scripture are quoting from. He's saying, and, and going back to a story there where the Israelites started griping, and there was a big problem with uh, Korah and a couple of other dudes and their families. So Moses finally said, that's it. Y'all stand over here, and we'll stand over here. And if God's real, let's see what God does. Uh, transcripting here. But he then, then the hole opens up, they all fall in. And then Moses says, there we go. Um, and then he says this. Come out from among them and be separate. So he's saying the point of the story is even inside the Israelites, there was sin in the camp. And there came a point when God said, come out, be, be called separate. And so now we come into our scripture today. He quoted all of that. That's the story. Now, here's what I find kind of odd. Today, in a nutshell, what this chapter is about is he's going to talk about godly repentance godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And I'm thinking, well, Paul, you kind of mixed it up. The chapter 6 is about coming out and be separate. So this is where you make a decision. And then the second thing he talks about now is going to be godly sorrow leading to godly repentance. Um, but here's the thing. In order to come out from among them, in order to have the gumption really to do it, because you know, I, I also walked in the world. I mean, it's tough. You know, and all your friends are wanting to do one thing and you feel called to do something else. And when you're, when you're in that place, you first have to decide that's worth doing to come out from among. I'm going to be counted as separate from what everyone else is doing. And so then to understand what this godly sorrow is going to cause you to become, first you have to separate. And um, so it actually does make sense, though on first notice it, it doesn't. So we'll look at this. Verse 1 again, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, 
perfecting that word means in the state of becoming. So perfecting is, is it's sort of like filling the gas tank. At what point is it full? Well, not until you actually hit, you know, the F, full. You know, all that in between is a transitional phase of going from rich to poor. I mean, going from, you know, empty to full. Um, so as you're filling up, that's a transitional, uh, you know, time. And uh, so that's what perfecting here means. And then holiness. Well, what does holiness mean? That word, man, in Christianity, we've turned it into a lot. We, we picture angels, you know, we have the, the music, the harps, you know, ah, you know, all of that. We think uh, clouds has nothing to do with any of that. Holiness is what he was talking about last time when he said, come out from among them and be ye separate. The word holiness means in the Hebrew to be separate. Well, that's not fun. We like to be together. The world teaches us uh, we need to be, become more unified. We need to become one. We need, you know, right? Isn't that what the world teaches? Interesting, in Revelation it says, and this is what happens in the end. They all became one, and it was bad. <laughs> the Lord comes back. One world government, one world anything, one world religion, one world anything God never has said is good. It's always bad. Even going back to the Old Testament, to the Tower of Babel, he said it's not good that they're all in one place. Let's separate them, right? I mean, this is, this is human nature. He set up nations to keep us apart. Interesting, because we don't get along well. Have you noticed in America, which is supposed to be, you know, when I was a kid in the history books, they said we were the melting pot. And now here lately, somebody came up and said, no, we're a salad bowl. Like, whatever, just let us be. But no, uh, really, um, you know, we've got all this stuff of trying to melt together, but is it working lately? Not really. It's not working. Why? Because we need to segregate? Because, no, because we're sinners. That's why it's done. it never works. Since year one, people don't get along. Isn't that interesting? Um, so here, holiness is to be separated not from something, but to God. Because see, what we're doing in this country is we're worried about being separated from. But the Bible says, no, be separate from the world and separated unto God. It's not about not having a master. You know, here in America, we're all about liberty and freedom. Well, freedom is not really freedom unless you know really what you're free from and what you're free to go cling to. It's not about not having a master. We're so worried in the nation right now about slavery and masters. It's not about that. We're all slaves. Look at the New Testament. The whole thing. So you're, you're slaves to your health. You're slaves to your, to your banking. You're slaves to your job. You're, you're a slave whether you want to be or not. We're all slaves. But I found Jesus Christ. And as Paul started so many of his epistles, Paul, the bondservant, you know what that word means? Bondservant. They watered it down. You know, it, you can actually read some of the notes when they were uh, transliterating some of the most popular uh, Bibles today, and they, they worried about, you know, do we put slavery into the New Testament? Because that's not popular. And so they watered that word down. Bond servant, it means bond slave. You're, you're a bond slave to Jesus. It's not about not having a master. It's about having the right one in your life. Who's going to tell you what to do? Jesus Christ, the word of God is going to be my master, you see. That's, that's where we live. 
So we're perfecting holiness. We come out from among the world. We come out from among those who are false teachers, who are false whatevers, as uh, Numbers said there in the last chapter, and uh, Paul quoted, we come out from among and we're separated unto God. We're perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Um, And uh, this isn't just from people, by the way. Holiness is separation from two things the Bible points out clearly. One, evil people or people who aren't going the same way you're going, as chapter 6 pointed out. Second thing, evil actions, as uh, what we ourselves do, uh, that are from the world. It's things they give us. First Peter 1, 14 and 15 talk about that. Come out from among the world and all the habits of the world and the things that, that they sell us and say, you've got to be involved in this. And, you know, fornication and going and getting drunk and having all your this worldly junk going on. He says, come out from among all of that stuff. So it's our actions and it's people. It's, it's all of that combined. And it's to be separated to God. He says in verse 2, open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. He says that because it's hard when you write this stuff about come out from among uh, others that you know. He knows it's going to cause problems. So he says, open your hearts to us. We haven't wronged anybody. I don't say this to condemn, for I've said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. So he's saying we're doing Christian life together as a church. That's what he's writing to him. He says, I didn't, I didn't tell you this. To, to cause problems. I told you this because we're doing life together and I actually care for you guys. Great is my boldness of speech towards you, he says. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. He says, basically in verse 4, his boldness of speech toward them is to speak the truth. Even though it might sting today, he says, the truth is worth it, and I want to perfect this holiness within you. But he also says, great is my boasting. In other words, I'm really proud of you guys because I told you some hard things, and you searched your heart out to see what was true and right. You were good Bereans, remember, as he said earlier, where you've heard the word, and then you went to search it out to see, is what you're saying matching the word of God? And then you're acting on it. So great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort that you're acting right. Remember the sin way back in verse uh, or chapters 3 and 4, he alluded back to it from 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote. The sin was simply this. There was a guy, he came to church, and he had sex with his dad's wife. Probably not his mother. It was probably a, a new wife. And uh, the church then swept it under the rug. They just said, oh, well, you know, we're not going to say anything about it, even though there's a problem right here in the midst. And Paul lost it. What? You're not going to say as a church, this is wrong. In fact, you're going to condone it? So then we have chapters written where he's talking about, you guys need to deal with this. So now he's happy. They dealt with this problem. They came out from among those. They put the guy aside um, until he would repent and come back and say, hey, I messed up. And uh, so now today he's going to talk about godly sorrow and forgiveness. Still talking about that incident from a long time ago. Now, he's talking about himself still here. He says, indeed, verse 5, when we came to Macedonia, so he's talking about his missionary trips. Says, Let me recount this here. When I came to you where I was at, when I came to northern Greece, Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. So physically we were worn out. 
uh, we were troubled on every side. That's talking psychologically. We were, w- w- there was spiritual combat going on all around us. Um, outside were conflicts, so there were physical conflicts from the outside sources that were hitting him. Inside were fears. And so it's, that's psychologically. Inside, I was scared to death. Here I'm, you know, this is Apostle Paul saying, I'm scared to death trying to just tell people about Jesus and uh, doing this. But nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And, you know, I want to point this out because <laughs> I've just read through that and I think, all right, Paul, here you are, you know, patting yourself on the back again. Good, good, Paul. But I all of a sudden saw something this time that just stumped, it just stuck out to me. Please note in verse 5, if you just casually read through that, that everything was not going well. That's how I would surmise that verse. Not going well for Paul. Yet, it's evident from verse 6, God was still on Paul's side. So everything was not going well in his life, and yet God was still on his side. And, you know, that really ministered to me because sometimes when everything is not going well in my life or your life, that does not mean God has abandoned. Now, you may be like Job. You might be blessed with a great spouse or some amazing friends that come and say, you might want to just go shoot yourself. That's what Job's wife said. Um, Now, I've got a great wife. She doesn't say that. Um, But, uh, you know, that could be, or you could have some wonderful friends who say, and that's what his friend, there's one, uh, Eleazar, which was Job's friend. He said, well, I'll tell you why you're doing so bad. You're probably a horrible sinner. That's what it is. You're like, oh man, that's what it is. You know what? It was, it was none. In fact, we learned from reading through Job, God was proud of him, proud of him and letting all of this happen to him. So if you're sitting here today, I want you to feel encouraged if you're really going through what you would call your own little cesspool, know that God may still be with you. If you're not living in a sin, you know, where you're just out there doing something, if you're just trials galore hitting your life, coming out of left field, know that God's still with you. Unless God's told you he's abandoned you, which we can look to his word and see like, oh, you're living in sin? Yeah, God's going to move away from you. Um, but if you are obeying the Lord... God's still with you. And that's just, that's so great. Second thing that I saw, and I've just never saw this before. You know, when we get down, you and I all, we look for God to, to come in miraculous ways into our life. Lord, split the sea. Lord, you know, I want, I want something big. Show me you're here. Well, God, who comforts the downcast, he comforted, and this is the Apostle Paul, by the coming of Titus. So how does God comfort us? Well, maybe in your life, start looking for a brother and sister in the Lord that shows up, that can pray for you, that can comfort you. Go to church. Be surrounded by those who love you with Christian love. That'll speak the truth to you in love because God comforts us through people, through people, through common, ordinary acts of kindness. That's why he says in the scripture so often for the Christian, love one another. Kindness, 
joy, peace, all these things should, should just drip off the Christian because you are the hands and the feet of God Almighty. You see? You're, Jesus lives in you, and he is trying to bless others through your life, through my life. So, I don't know, they just jumped off at me. I hope that's an encouragement to you because we look for God in all these, you know, woo, twilight zone ways, you know, like that's just not accurate. It's accurate that he sends other brothers and sisters to us and say, hey, well, how can I help? How can I comfort you? And it's the comfort of God coming through that person. And it's okay if everything's not going well. God's still there. Verse uh, 7, it says, and not only by his coming, so talking about Titus, so he was comforted by the coming, but not just that, but also the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. That's kind of a hard verse to understand. In the New Living, it says it this way. His presence was a joy. So, so Titus's presence coming to me was a joy. But so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. That's another way to say that. So he says, hey, I was, I was excited by what Titus came and, and told me, but I was even more excited what he came and told me about the church, that you came together, you dealt with that problem, and then everything's moving ahead in the right way. And then he lists uh, three things. Your earnest desire, uh, which means uh, how much you, you longed to do what was right. Your mourning, so you were upset about what went wrong. And your zeal for me. In other words, that's the opposite of your hatred for me. So instead of you turning on me, there was a zeal for me. So he says, so, so everything's going to come back together and it's going to be okay. And so I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorrow with my letter, I don't regret it. So he says, look, if I wrote you some hard things and I said, man, there was this problem going on, you had to deal with it. I wrote you the truth. And if it made you upset, if it made you to sorrow a little bit, I don't regret that. Though I did regret it. <laughs> so he says, I don't regret it, but I do regret that, that it had to happen. So don't, you know, don't confuse the language. I've regretted that, that it had to happen, but I don't regret doing it. I'd do it again, is what he's saying. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorrow, though only for a while. So it's, like, it's good medicine. Yep, sorry I hurt your feelings. I told the guy that he shouldn't be sleeping with his uh, uh, dad's new wife. But hey, if that made you guys get upset, it made you had to kind of think things through, so be it. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrow uh, or sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So in other words, this is cool. He says, I didn't want to just hurt your feelings with this stuff. I wanted it to end somewhere. I wanted your sorrow to lead to a repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you may suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. It's one of the most, this is the foundational verse of this chapter. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And that, it leads to salvation. Not to be regretted. Every person in the ministry needs to have this verse. Every Christian needs to have this verse and keep it close. If you speak the truth and somebody says, well, the emotional response you wanted, which was for me to go, oh, that was amazing, doesn't happen. In fact, they go, well, that was hard to hear. And now I'm kind of hacked off at you. You know what? Christians, you all need to develop thick skin 
and really soft hearts. That's what we all have to have in the ministry because you have to speak the truth in love always. Jesus came and he spoke the truth and there were many that said there in John, it said these things are too hard for me and they walked away. Did it hurt Jesus's feelings? Probably, but he didn't chase after them. He kept teaching the word. Be faithful wherever God has put you. Teach the word. Stand up for Jesus Christ. Stand up for the fruit of the Spirit, that it is true, that it works. If you have Jesus in your heart, the fruit of the Spirit should come out, and it should look like love. It should look like kindness. It should look like gentleness, and it should, above all, look like truth. Speak the truth about Jesus Christ and who He is, what He's done in your heart. Always speak and act the truth. Um, Godly sorrow produces repentance. There's something I want to share with you. There's a story, the best story in the whole Bible about uh, repentance. Um, And we'll read through this. It's over in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, most of you probably know this story. Uh, It's talking about King David. It says there in verse 1, chapter 11, 2 Samuel, it happened in the spring of the year. It's time when kings, they go out to battle. That uh, David... He's old by this time. He's been fighting a long time, but King David is kind of old. So he stays behind. Uh, I say old. Uh, he was in his 40s, we, we think, uh, maybe early 50s. But he sent Joab, his servants with him, all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon, besieged uh, Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So everybody else goes to war. David goes, eh, not this year. I'm going to stay home, stay in my castle. Happened one evening. David arose from his bed. He walked on the roof of the king's house. All their roofs over there, flat uh, veranda type roof top. So David's out strolling on his roof. He walks on his roof. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold. So David turned. No, it says David sent. <laughs> and he inquired about this woman that he sees bathing. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? That's not a play on words, bathing Sheba. But anyway, um, the daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah. Uh, so David, verse 4, he sent messengers and he took her. So see David, he sees this beautiful woman bathing and he goes, hey, who is that? And uh, so then he sends servants over to grab the girl. He brought her back. He, she came to him and he lay with her. So he had sex with her. And, uh, and it's so funny, for she was cleansed from her impurity. Uh, that's, that's a religious ritual, so she's religious, but, you know, that doesn't matter. She returned to her house. The woman conceived. She sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Uh-oh. David sent to Joab, saying, well, send me Uriah, the husband, because he's out at battle. David stayed home. Uriah, her husband's out in battle. Send for Uriah. Joab, he sends uh, Uriah to David. Uriah comes. Verse 7, David asked Joab, uh, ask how Joab was doing. Small talk. Hey, so how's the battle? How's Joab? Cool. Uh, how the war prospered. David then said to Uriah, hey, why don't you go down to your house? Wash your feet. Uh, so Uriah departed the king's house and a gift of food uh, from the king followed him. So he's even you know, putting gifts on him. Go to your house. There's a plan here. He, what he wants is he wants Uriah to go and sleep with his own wife. That way, the pregnancy would be covered up and be like, oh, you're having a baby. Who knew, you know? Um, and then David could get out of this, but it's not happening. So uh, Uriah 
Didn't go home. Verse 9, he slept at the door of the king's house with the servants of the Lord. He did not go to his house. You say, why in the world not? The man's been in battle. Same code that you have today. A lot of warriors, they go to battle and they say, uh, you know, it's kind of like boxers, you know, we're not going to have sex until we beat this deal because we're going to be whatever, you know. And so the same thing on the battlefield is like, if those guys are out there, I'm not, I'm not going to go home and be with my wife while everybody else is off fighting. So he has, he has more going for him than King David at this point. So it was told to David, verse 10, Uriah didn't go to his house. David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? No, you've been away from your wife all this time. You didn't go to your house. Uriah says to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. They're off out in the battlefield, in other words. And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord, they're encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. (sighs) What do you do with honest people? Uh, So, verse 12, David says to Uriah, well, wait here. Today also, tomorrow I'll let you depart. He says, maybe one more night. The guy's going to cave, night two, right? Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. When David called him, he ate and drank with him, and he made him drunk. He says, I'm going to get this guy. He's going to go home. So he made him drunk. At evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he didn't go up to his house. So he just keeps sleeping on David's doorstep. He will not go home to his wife because he knows what that's doing to the morale of the troops back on the field. He just, it's, it's, this is not an honorable thing to do. Let's go win the war first. In the morning, it happened that David, he wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he says, this didn't work. I made the guy drunk and did all this stuff. So now what am I going to do? I can't cover up the fact that I've got a child with Bathsheba, this guy's wife. What am I going to do? So he wrote a letter to Joab, the commanding officer, saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So when Uriah gets back, put him out in front. This is like Star Wars Order 66, you know. I mean, that's what's going on here. It's like pull back from him, let the guy go down in flames. So it was. While Joab besieged that city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men on the other side, in other words. Then the men of the city, they came out and they fought with Joab. Some of the people, the servants of David fell. Uriah died also. So he died in battle. Joab sent, told David all the things concerning the war. And uh, it comes on down to uh, verse 23. This messenger, he's talking to David, and he says, Surely the men prevailed against us. They came out to us in the field. We drove them as far back as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants. Some of the king's servants are dead. Your servant Uriah is dead also. So then David, he sends a messenger back saying to Joab, Don't let this displease you. Hey, don't let this bother your heart that you did this thing because I told you to do it. See, his sin, are you seeing this? His one sin, hey, beautiful woman, didn't turn away, but now he went and slept with her. Then you have a child. Then you're trying to get Uriah to mess up. Then you're killing Uriah. Uh, Now you're having to comfort Joab because you brought him into your sin. This thing's really getting out of hand. When the, when the uh, encourage him, he says in verse 25, that he, it's okay, Joab. <laughs> well, verse 26, chapter ends, the wife of Uriah heard, that's Bathsheba, that her husband was dead. She mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him that son. 
Pretty bad way to end, King David. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I bet it did. Well, then we come into chapter 12. This is where it starts getting interesting when you talk about... And see, we're still back on, in our text on this verse. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. I'm getting there. Stick with me. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, this has happened. Terrible story. The Lord sent Nathan. He's a prophet, okay, to David. And he came to him and he says... And he, and he gives a story. This is cool because I, th- I thought of this too. Sometimes we want to speak to each other in our culture and we're just real pointed, you know. It's, we don't have a lot of finesse anymore. Try telling somebody a parable. Hey, have you ever considered this story? Listen to this. This is beautiful. A good way to learn to speak and communicate. He said to him, hey, there were two men in one city, David. One rich, the other guy was poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished it. It grew up together with him, his children. It ate of his own food. It drank from his own cup. Now, we would have a dog, but this guy has a little ewe. Um, and uh, it drank from his own cup. That's nasty. But, uh, and it lay on his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man refused to take from his own flock. So he's got all of these use. Poor man's got the one. But he refuses to take one of his own to prepare a meal. So he took the poor man's lamb, the one little ewe he had that was eaten out of his cup, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Cook it up. So David, here in this little story, his anger was greatly aroused against this man. He said to Nathan, Well, as the Lord lives, this man has done a terrible thing. He shall surely die. Uh, this guy's terrible. He's going to take the, this one guy's you. This is horrible. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So, wow, he's going to restore and then kill him, I guess. I, I would have said that opposite. But, well, then Nathan says to David, you are the man. This is you, David. That story, the fake story, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping. Yeah, he already had wives before this. He had, he had plenty going on. Uh, God says this, if that had been too little, I'd have given you much more. Why would have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah. So if you wonder, like having somebody else kill somebody for you, if that's really murder, God just says, no, I view that that you killed Uriah. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Sin does this. When, when sin begins... James 1, sin, it starts and it turns into something. And the end of sin is death. Not always physical death, but a spiritual, you're just dead. Can God revive you? Yes. But sin produces death. James 1, 17, it's very clear. Therefore, the sword won't depart from your house, David, because you've despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up adversity against you from your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes. I'll give them to your neighbor. 
and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. Now, that's terrible. You know, when I pray to the Lord, I don't want to hear that, right? We want to hear blessings and, you know, but God's pointedly talking to David in his sin. David then, this is his response, not excuses. There's, there's none, none of that. Look at, look at what he says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned, not against Uriah, not against Bathsheba, though he did. But he says, I've sinned against the Lord. That's, that's the main problem I've got. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. So consequence of sin, though you're forgiven, is still there. Isn't that interesting? Now, one other scripture I want to read to you real fast. Psalms 51. This Psalms, David penned and he wrote talking about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And this is what repentance looks like. It's worked from the Old Testament all the way to now. Our old, the old patriarchs were saved because they had faith in a God. They repented of their sins, faith in what Jesus would do. We are Christians today because we believe that Jesus came, that he died on the cross for our sins, and we're looking back to it. So it's a mirror from both sides looking at the same situation. Godly repentance is needed. Look at what he writes here. Psalms 51, a prayer of repentance to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, my sins always before me against you. You only have I sinned. I've done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak blameless when you judge. In other words, he's not blaming God for this. He's going, you are blameless, God. It was me. I did this thing. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Now he's like, I'm going to just tell it how it is. I was born a sinner. I've always been a sinner. In sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you, talking to the Lord, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you'll make me to know wisdom. In other words, you are ripping me to shreds right now. And Lord, you are down in the deepest part of my heart showing me my sin and what I did wrong. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This is a prayer, you know. Make me hear joy and gladness. Because probably right now David was saying there is none. I've done all this horrible stuff. One thing's led to another. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken. So he says, Lord, you have torn my heart apart with the sin that I committed. That the bones you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So he says, God, I tell you what was wrong. It was way back on the rooftop. My heart wasn't right. And it started really small, 
by me really back before that i was lazy as a king i didn't go out with my men the time of the year when all the kings go forth i was lazy i got out of the battle and i was lazing it up at the house second thing that happens i'm strolling on my roof and i see this woman and did i handle it right wasn't wrong that he saw the woman you know and everybody talks about that like well she should have been you know bathing in a scuba suit or whatever and now she was, it, was, it was how it was done in those days. You, you took your bath outside. You did it, usually a courtyard area. King's house, David's uh, roof would have been much higher than everybody else. He had a bird's eye view. You see something, you know, he had it in his, his heart. He could have turned away. And he's saying here, it was my heart. It wasn't Uriah and all the other stuff that happened. It was right there at the beginning. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew that steadfast spirit that was within me. It was once there. I need it there again, Lord. Don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, that's, that's an Old Testament idea that we don't have to worry about today. Once you're saved, you're saved. You have the Holy Spirit that comes in our heart. But he's concerned about that back before Jesus came. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Now, isn't that interesting? Lord, coming through all of this turmoil, if I can get my life back on track, then I will be set now, having come through this, to teach transgressors, other sinners, your ways. Isn't that interesting? And sinners shall be converted to you. If you will forgive me my sin and restore me, forgive me, Lord, then my life's going to be ready to serve you. That's interesting. We think, oh, you can't serve God if you've gone through a bunch of stuff. On contraire, you can serve God much better when you've gone through heartache and sin yourself. You are now graduated, you see. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth shall show forth your praise. This is a heart change. This is repentance that led to something. Then, amazing what he says here. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. He knows the temple and all that animal dying and all of that, that was the Levite's way. Said that's not really. It's a picture of Jesus that's going to come in the future. It doesn't actually mean anything to you, Lord. That we're all looking ahead to Jesus. You don't desire it. If you did, I'd give it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. God's not sadistic. He wasn't happy that literally uh, history tells us tens of thousands of animals uh, on the big days at the temple were killed daily. God doesn't delight in all that. It was a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ that would be shed for us one day. It was all meant to be a picture, which is why it's so ridiculous the Jews are wanting to go back to that. We have Jesus. We don't need all of that. You don't delight in it. The sacrifices of God, now this, pay attention and listen to this, because this is what God is still after today. They are a broken spirit. It's when you go, forgive me, Lord. I need you I need your forgiveness. I need godly sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation, as our text here today is saying. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now, I share all that. Back to our scripture. 
Because when you are sorry about something, Paul is trying to tell us it should look like something. And it's going to propel you forward. You want to have, you want to leave here going, I can breathe. Then you need to have godly sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation. That's a change. To repent means you are going one way and you turn and you go another way. It doesn't mean that you, you, when it comes to Jesus Christ, you don't kind of sort of believe in Jesus. And I give this illustration all the time. You know, you can set a chair up right here, real rickety old chair, you know, and say, hey, do you believe in the chair? Oh, yeah, all of us, we believe. Set in the chair. Well, I I will if I needed to. No, you need to. Set in the chair, you know. And you're unwilling to just sit on the chair. Why? Because I don't really think it's going to hold me up. Well, then you didn't really put your faith in the chair. Jesus says you believe, and then you walk over, and you sit on the chair. You have faith that's going to hold you up. Jesus is saying when you repent, you say everything I put my faith in is gone. I am now going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I want to believe in Jesus. And, and if your sorrow, you know, in your heart, there's a sorrow that's there. If you're sorry you got caught, doesn't count. If you're sorry because you don't ever want to do it again, because you want to be an, a better example in life, you want to, to leave the world and you want to cling to Jesus Christ, that's a godly sorrow that it says here that leads to salvation and it's not to be regretted. Interesting. Now, verse 11, back in our text, for observe this very thing, he says. So let's look at this closely before we're uh, through here. You sorrowed in a godly manner. This is kind of what happens, and I underline some of these in my Bible. What diligence it produced in you. Diligence, that word means haste or speed. In other words, yeah, one of these days I'll get to it. It's not real. When it's real, you won't want to leave here today until you know for sure you're right with God because you believe in this stuff. Diligence it produced in you. What? Second thing, clearing of yourselves. Um, in other words, you're, you have a concern to make yourself right again. Uh, what? Indignation. So this is, this is, you know, I've done this before. Not mad at the other people. Mad at yourself. And indignation. Man, I am such a worm. I can't believe I did that again. And you say, I want Jesus to come into my heart, and I want to change now. I'm kind of sick of me, you know, and I'm sick of being me. So I want Jesus to change my heart. There's an indignation. What fear? Uh, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. Fear, that's the root word in the Greek for phobia. So it's kind of like wrongophobia, okay? I am afraid of being wrong and on the wrong side of things. So I want to be right. That's what the root word for righteousness. It's what God says is right. That's what I want in my life. So that's, this is part of this godly sorrow producing repentance. What venomous desire, he then says. Uh, desire there in the Greek means longing. I really long for this. I really want this. Uh, what zeal. Zeal, that word means favorable excitement. So you're actually kind of excited to get things right, not Eeyore, one of these days we'll get there. You know, no, it's like I, immediately, I'm Tigger, you know, I'm, I'm jumping on this. I want to change today. Uh, and then the last one I love, what vindication, um, which means it's a, a vindication means an outward punishment of the offense, which means 
Christianity should look like something. It means I, I see what I've done wrong. There's a correction coming. I see what God says should happen in my life. There's a correction coming. In all things, Paul says, kudos to you guys. You proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There was a godly repentance, and on all of these levels, you aced it, guys. You're, you're, you're excited to change. Therefore, I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. So he didn't do it for the guy that had slept with his uh, dad's new wife, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, uh, which would be probably the dad, I'm assuming. Uh, that would be a weird family to have to go to Thanksgiving meal, just saying. Um, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So he says, I'm saying all this not to correct all that situation, but because I want you to know I actually care, and I want you to understand what God is doing in the midst of all of this mess. And then verse 13, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. So he's talking the whole, this issue's behind us. Um, we've comforted because you came through it. We rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, again, because he came to visit, because his spirit's been refreshed by you all. If in anything I've boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. His affections are greater for you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So ends the chapter. Now, some of the meaning of these last verses are actually a little lost on us today. He's very pointed on Titus and the news that he was bringing, whatever it was, from the church, the other things, saying, I'm really happy to hear that you're getting your act together. I, I get an idea of what he's talking about through reading and studying through 1 Corinthians. That whole first letter, they had problems. They were getting drunk at the communion table. They were, I mean, the fornication was going on. I mean, all of this stuff in the church. And he says, you corrected all of this stuff, including this one bad incident. And there's news coming about these things. I'm super excited about you guys because you're back on track with the Lord. So, you know, the thing that I get out of this whole thing, living around active sinners within the church and how Paul's telling us this, it's sort of like living with a family of skunks, um, you know, and they're just trigger happy. I don't know if you've ever had that. We had a at the ranch I used to live at, we had a family of skunks, and they lived under the bunkhouse. And so what you did, you just learned, you know, they're kind of like millennials. They're easily triggered. So um, you, just, you just were careful on how you get around them because their tail was always going, <laughs> you know, so you just gingerly, you know, peace and love and all that is with the skunk family. You either want to kill them or get along. There's no in-between. Um, so, you know, but it can be a little nerve wracking. And what happens within Christianity is you live with sinners and because sinners get very, uh, emotional, they get very, uh, it's kind of like, you know, my kids, they went swimming this week and they got sunburned. And, um, so what happens when you get sunburned is you become touchy, you know, and what used to be considered love, you know, a hug is suddenly evil. Um, you know, and um, that sort of thing. Well, sinners, that kind of does the same thing. They get burned, scorched. Everybody's trigger happy. Um, that's what happens. And that's what Paul is saying through this. Like, I was scared to write to you guys because I was afraid how you're going to respond. You're all touchy. But in the end, they did what was right. So the encouragement for us today, don't be touchy. Uh, don't be burnt. And for all of us, man, this is the Christian walk. If we have sin in our lives, 
Don't point the sin out in everybody else. Just your own. That's good enough. I have enough of my own problems. We look at ourselves and go, Lord, I read this and I want godly repentance because I want that holiness. I just want to be separated to the Lord and live for Him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your persistence to always be there for us. We ask that this next week you would go with us and before us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.